Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 42, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm the author of the recently released book, The God Who Fights for You, and last year's Spiritual Grit, and The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast is based, and I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. I've also been telling you for the last few episodes that I'm, I have just adopted um, my own persona as the godfather of our Jesus-centered planner, now in its third year. The last two years, it's quickly sold out, uh, so I'm giving you a heads up on it. Um, I'm the godfather of the Jesus-centered planner because I actually did nothing to produce that, but it's based on our whole world of Jesus-centered resources. And this year, it's been updated with all new devotions and prompts and uh, Bible readings and a weekly calendar that now starts with Sunday instead of Monday. And since it sold out the last two years, giving you a heads up, you can head on over to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, episode 42 of season four, and you'll find a link there, a direct link to go check out the planner as uh, something maybe that you would love for 2020 or fantastic gift for Christmas. Head on over there. So today is the eighth episode in the series we're calling The Beeline Practices. The Beeline Practices are simply a way of orienting your life around a closer orbit with Jesus. Um, they are not a list of how-tos or new rules to follow or a formula to make your life better. They're simply a playground equipment on the playground. Different ideas and different ways to lean into your life and sort of different habits that either will immediately resonate with you or you'll think, ah, not so much for me. So uh, we're uh, moving through all 18 or 19 of these beeline practices, and some of these will, uh, like I said, immediately appeal to you, and some won't so much. So that's the way to approach this. If, if you hear in one of these something that resonates with you, then that's likely the Spirit of Jesus prodding you to lean into that particular practice. So uh, the closer we uh, orbit around Jesus, the more our life is transformed. So if you're hoping for life transformation, you're not going to likely find it in whatever self-help practice or self-help idea or self-help uh, fad you're currently looking at. <laughs> Jesus is the one who transforms us from the inside out. So these beeline practices, the, the more of them that you begin living in whatever way, the closer your orbit around him will be, and the more you're drawn into his gravitational pull and you'll be transformed. So. In this episode, episode 42, we're going to explore the beeline practice of redefining truth. Now, there's this powerful buried moment in Jesus' path toward the cross. The moment is when the Roman governor Pilate is questioning Jesus, and he's actually trying to find a way to avoid executing him. He's giving Jesus every out he can think of because he's quickly assessed that this guy has done nothing worthy of execution. So he's trying to figure out how he can pander to the Jewish leaders because he doesn't want trouble with them. He wants a peaceful relationship as an occupying army. He doesn't want trouble. 
but he's also uh, in charge of making life and death decisions, and he doesn't see an obvious reason why they want him executed. So he's trying to find a way to avoid doing that. And uh, in the process, he's uh, probing him, probing Jesus with questions, and he, and he says, hey, these Jewish leaders say that you're claiming to be a king. Are you a king? And here's how Jesus responds. You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. And then Pilate responds with this profound uh, question. What is the truth? And he leaves it hanging there. It's just an awkward moment. But it's interesting. Let's slow down and go back here again. If you ever wonder about the primary reason that Jesus came, we say, well, he came to sacrifice his life for us and to uh, give us a connection to salvation. Actually, from Jesus' own mouth, here's what he says is the reason for why he came. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth will recognize that what I say is true. Here we have this kind of, you couldn't be more blunt. He came to testify to the truth, and he's saying that if we love the truth, we'll recognize the truth in him. But let's consider Pilate's question. What is truth? How do we know it when we see it? I think the best way to think about what is truth is to go back to that scene where Pilate asks the question and Jesus doesn't respond. He's just mute. He's silent. Now, here's what I want to point out. Jesus is not pointing us to the truth in life. He didn't even describe himself that way. He's answering this question, what is truth, by not opening his mouth. He simply stands in front of Pilate, and the Roman governor doesn't realize what he's doing there. What Jesus is doing is living out what he's already said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate expects him to give an answer to what the truth is, and Jesus' answer is to simply stand in front of him and show him what is the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's not simply pointing to the truth. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said. Spurgeon is the one who first planted in me this whole idea of beeline practices. He's the one that lived the beeline practices in Victorian England as the most well-known Christian leader in the world at the time. And, uh, Every time he gave a sermon, no matter where, what passage he started from or what the focus was or the topic was, he always found his way to Jesus no matter what, and he called that beelining. Here's what he said. Jesus is the truth. We believe in him, not merely in his words. We believe in him, not merely in his words. He is the revealer and the revelation. He's the illuminator and the light of men. He is exalted in every word of truth because he is its sum and substance. A Christless gospel is no gospel at all, and a Christless discourse is the cause of merriment to devils. I love that quote. So he's trying to describe what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying he's the substance of truth. So let's uh, turn a corner here and, and consider what truth, this wrestling match over truth in our own lives might look like. Let's consider, for instance, our fears in life. So fear is our most powerful motivator. So it's important to pay attention to the truth, quote unquote, that's fueling our fears. If there's no truth to the fear, then that fear does not deserve our respect. So let me give you a few examples here. 
Let's take, uh, take one that's uh, kind of dominant in our parenting culture today, the fear of child abduction. So I think there's few fears that have a stranglehold on our parental psyche more than child abduction by a stranger. So th there's an archetype for this. I, I always tell people it's, it's always a white windowless van slowly moving through your neighborhood uh, looking for children to snatch off a suburban sidewalk and the media, of course, has made stranger abductions sort of a staple in its news diet. So uh, it taps into this um, sort of psychological reality that assumes these kinds of crimes are both common and inevitable. But uh, there, there, and there's some pretty high-profile examples of this. Um, I, even uh, like six years ago in 2013, there was a 10-year-old girl named Jessica Ridgeway, um, who was here in my hometown, Denver. And she disappeared on her way home from school. And later, um, law enforcement discovered her dismembered body in an empty field and discovered that a, uh, a mentally unstable teenager had snatched her. So this fed into this narrative that this is the sort of thing that could happen to any child any day. And because it's so horrific, it grabbed everyone's attention. It was essentially uh, the, the definition of a parent's worst nightmare. And that nightmare then spears, spills over into our everyday fears. We fear this is something that could legitimately happen to our kids. But here's the truth. The odds that your child will be abducted by a stranger are infinitesimal. In a, in a typical year in the United States, there's an estimated 40 children who are abducted by strangers. Um, that, that these are what law enforcement officials call stereotypical abductions. So that conservatively translates to greater than one in a million chance that your child will become a victim of a stranger abduction. So how does that compare to other threats in our life? Well, you have, they, your child will have slightly better odds of getting hit by lightning. Um, and the chances of, let's see, let's, let's take the California lottery. The chances that you'll win $1,000 on a California, California scratch lottery ticket are one in a million the chance that you win $1,000 in the California lottery is about the same as your child being abducted by a stranger. So what are things that are more likely to happen than a, a stranger abduction? Um, well, um, the odds of a person dying while riding a horse are one in basically 300,000. Or the odds of a youth football player dying in, during a practice or a game are one in 78,000. And the lifetime odds of a passenger in a vehicle dying, and get this, the lifetime odds of a passenger in a vehicle dying are one in 228. So to put these numbers in perspective, um, in a few years, however old your child is, um, they'll have 700 times more likely to get an acceptance letter from Harvard than to be snatched by a stranger. So that, you know, un unintentional accidents, by the way, are by far the leading cause of death among children and teenagers, and car accidents are by far the number one source of unintentional accidents. So you would be much better off than worrying about a child abduction by a stranger, but uh, if you were to invest your time researching cars with better safety records or uh, having your teenager take a defensive driving course, or if you have small teenagers making sure the car seat that you buy is the, is the top of the line safest car seat. However, 
And one last point about this, if you're gonna worry anyway about a stranger abduction, realize this, of all of the kids who are victims of these stereotypical abductions, and that's, I said before, about uh, 40 a year in the United States, four out of 10, 10 of them are murdered. You can't underemphasize how traumatic that is. But that means that six out of 10 of them are eventually recovered. So more than half of those who are even um, snatched in our worst nightmare um, actually get returned to their parents. So there's better than a 50% chance you'll see them alive again. So here's what happens when we slow down and consider the truth about maybe one of our top fears in life, especially if you're a parent. What happens when you consider the truth is that you find that the, the truth that we believe doesn't have a firm foundation in reality. And Jesus came to not only reflect the truth, but to challenge the falsehoods through his truth. So it's important in every arena of our life that we uphold and respect and honor and crave the truth, no matter what it is. So we mentioned that Jesus doesn't merely point the way to true things or give us an example of what's truth. He is the truth himself. So the best way to know Jesus more intimately is to look at him through a particular filter. And the filter is this, whatever he says and does is the very definition of truth because Jesus is the source of everything that is true. So instead of bringing our truth to him and trying to make him bend to fit what we already believe is the truth, the way that we live as disciples is to come to him and let him bend us to his truth. So whatever we see in Jesus, what he says and does, is if we allow it, will form us into the truth. But we have to come to him as children with open, open arms, open hands, um, inviting him to form in us his truth instead of rubber stamp our truth. I hope that makes sense. So if we just randomly flip through the Gospel of John, uh, we find plenty of examples of truth rather than statements of truth. Typically, when we approach Jesus in, in the Bible, we are fixated on his statements of truth, and we pay less attention to the way he models truth. But Jesus said, I am the truth. So it's an open invitation for us to slow down and pay attention to what he does with people as a forming influence on what the truth really is. So for example, uh, we all know the story of Jesus chasing the money lenders out of the temple with a whip he created right on the spot. Um, and he's chasing these people out of the temple um, because they are, they are contrary. They're violating the essence of what the temple is about. So when we see Jesus chasing the money lenders out of the temple, um, we, then we say what Jesus is doing here is modeling the truth. So what do we discover when we look through that lens? What is the truth? The truth is that uh, this uh, sort of metaphoric connection between God and man, the temple exists to be a bridge for relationship between human beings and God. And in the Old Testament, it was the only uh, connection for relationship. It's, it was the precursor to Jesus, who now is the bridge in our relationship to God. The temple once was. And what it represented was God's heart. He wants 
to stay in intimate relationship with his people. And in, in the Old Testament time, the temple uh, and the priests who served in that temple were the way to do that. And what Jesus saw happening around the temple was what human beings do. We find a way to make a buck around stuff that's important to people. We find ways to leverage money out of their pocket when we discover what's what really matters to them. And what really matters to them was uh, somehow to live a good life, to live a, a righteous life. And part of that was making sacrifices to God. That's, that's what they thought they were supposed to do to maintain goodness in their life. And so this whole industry grew up around this. And now it has sort of taken over the focus for what the temple was really all about, which is a bridge into relationship. So Jesus drives them out of the temple to emphasize this is about relationship not about commerce, not about uh, practices that make you feel like you're, you're in right standing with God. The temple is, for, is an invitation in relationship. Or you could take a look um, again at how Jesus called out the, what I'd call the religious power brokers of his day, the Pharisees, when he calls them offensive names like whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers. So when we see him doing this, we, we, we say, Jesus is modeling the truth. Now, what truth is he modeling? What can we learn from him when we pay attention to how he spoke so harshly to these religious leaders? Well, we know that what the reason that Jesus spoke harshly, I think, was twofold. One was for those who were following the Pharisees, and one was for the Pharisees themselves. So Jesus said over, he, he called the Pharisees harsh names to try to point out to people that what the Pharisees were trying to represent, there was truth behind what they were trying to represent, but what the Pharisees were modeling, what they were shoving onto the backs of the people was noxious and disgusting to Jesus, Lo loading rule after rule to keep uh, in order to maintain a sense of righteousness, uh, burdens that Jesus accused the Pharisees of being unable to carry themselves, loading that stuff onto people, trying to create a people who are always trying harder to be better. Um, and we're really no different in this day. We the universally believe that our mission in life is to be a good person. So we are, we are uh, 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 sort of uh, vulnerable to this lie that, the, that our calling in life is to try harder to be a better person. And Jesus found this disgusting and, uh, and it, it's a lie. And so uh, in one way, he's calling the Pharisees out on this because he's trying to point out to people that what they're telling you to do and how they're modeling it is disgusting to God. On the other hand, he is also calling them these names because these Pharisees feel like they are, they are already righteous. They're the examples of righteousness in the culture. And actually, their righteousness is empty. And so uh, when he calls them these names, he's poking into their arrogance He's poking a hole in their cup, hoping to drain out their self-righteousness out through that hole so that they, uh, they, they have a chance of feeling empty and therefore um, opening themselves to Jesus, opening themselves to God to fill them with his righteousness instead of their own. So one more, uh, one more little example, my, one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John is the sinful woman who crashes this society party 
and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And his response to that woman is the truth. Now, here's a woman who doesn't belong at the party. She, it's a scandal that she even shows up at the door. And then she makes the scandal even worse by approaching the guest of honor and touching him, uh, washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. It's a, it's a disgusting display of someone who doesn't understand their place in the world. And Jesus instead uplifts her example as an incredible act of passion and faith and elevates the, the emptiness she feels and therefore the hunger she has for Jesus as a beautiful thing. So what do we know about the truth here? Well, um, the people that Jesus honors and respects are not those we would expect. Um, the people he honors and respects are the desperate people, the hungry people, the empty people, the people who see Jesus for who he really is. You can't really appreciate the beauty of Jesus unless you feel needy, unless you feel desperate, unless your own self-righteousness seems inconsequential to you. When that happens, you see him for who he really is. And this is what Jesus is trying to highlight here. He's trying to say the truth is, the better you feel about yourself, the less likely you are to see me for who I really am. And, and if you don't see me for who, you, who I really am, you will not enter into intimate relationship with me. And that is my end game. So we see here uh, multiple examples of Jesus living out the truth. And this is the way that we can read the Gospels. Well, we're looking not just for statements of truth Jesus makes, but um, the example of truth that he sets. And then we consider what is truth by paying attention to him, the very same thing he was trying to do with Pilate. He, he displayed himself as the example of truth. That is our path forward. So um, let's now shift gears a little bit and take a deeper dive into the quote-unquote truths that, that surround us in life. And these are the truths that capture us, that form us even when we're not aware. Um, if we live passively and not awake, these truths that surround us can begin to embed in us a foundation of perspective that may or may not be true. Um, all truths, no matter how they're couched, need to be filtered through the lens of the truth, of who Jesus is. So I thought it'd be interesting since um, uh, marketing uh, messages in our world are so ubiquitous, we, we are exposed to hundreds of thousands of marketing messages every year, and all of them are trying to portray some form of truth to us. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to just slow down, pay attention to one of those marketing messages, and, uh, and use this filter of Jesus redefining truth by, him, by what is true about him, using that filter to sort of examine one of the most uh, impactful marketing messages of the last 10 years. So there is a uh, organization that mapped the top 10 most influential marketing ad campaigns in American culture. And at the top of that list was the Real Beauty campaign by Dove Soap. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past on the podcast, but I thought it'd be interesting for you to listen to the entire three-minute commercial that kicked off this Real Beauty campaign. 
And then after we watch this, we're gonna just take a, a little journey through a set of evaluating questions that help us to flesh out both truth and falsehood from this ad campaign. Now, what we're going to do is slow and intentional, but the more that you flip this switch in your soul, the more this process of considering what is true about the messages that are influencing your life and comparing those messages through the lens of Jesus will become a regular part of your life. So um, I am going to enter in onto this commercial and give you a little commentary when the visuals, uh, obviously you can't see the visuals, so I'm gonna try to tell you what's going on. But let's go ahead and start. It's uh, set up very well, so let's listen in. I'm a forensic artist. Worked for the San Jose Police Department from 1995 to 2011. I showed up to a place I'd never been and there was a guy with a drafting board. We couldn't see them, they couldn't see us. Tell me about your hair. I didn't know what he was doing, but then I could tell after several questions that he was drawing me. Tell me about your chin. It kind of protrudes a little bit, hmm. especially when I smile. Your jaw? My mom told me I had a big jaw. What would be your most prominent feature? Kind of have a fat, rounder face. The older I've gotten, the more freckles I've gotten. I would say I have a pretty big forehead. Once I get a sketch, I say thank you very much, and then they leave. I don't see you. All I had been told before the sketch was to get friendly with this other woman, Chloe. Today I'm going to ask you some questions about a person you met earlier, and I'm going to ask you some general questions about their face. She was thin, so you could see her cheekbones. And her chin, it was a nice, thin chin. She had nice eyes. They lit up when she spoke. Cute nose. She had blue eyes, very nice blue eyes. So here we are. This is the sketch that you helped me create. And that's a sketch that somebody described of you. So yeah, that's... So the policeman is bringing in women to look at the sketch of themselves that they described versus the sketch a stranger described. And there's a marked difference in beauty. And it's obvious that the way that they've described themselves is... She looks closed off and fatter. Sadder, too. The second one looks more open, friendly, and happy. I should be more grateful of my natural beauty. It impacts the choices and the friends that we make, the jobs we apply for, how we treat our children. It impacts everything. Couldn't be more critical to your happiness. Do you think you're more beautiful than you say? Yeah. We spend a lot of time as women analyzing and trying to fix the things that aren't quite right. And we should spend more time appreciating the things that we do like. And then the tagline at the end is, you are more beautiful than you think. So let's track back through this just a little bit and ask some questions um, about this message. They kind of billboard the message they're trying to bring here at the very end. You're more beautiful than you really think. Here's some evaluating questions that we can use to slow down and consider the truth about this message, which is quite powerful when you, when you watch this commercial, and we'll put a link to it on our website so you can watch it for yourself, but it's quite a powerful, it's, it's, no, it's no accident that this is the most impactful ad campaign of the last decade because it did a brilliant job of capturing 
something that is right there in our soul, but we don't often admit it. And here we see it lived out um, in this experiment. So the first question is, is it true in light of what I know about Jesus? Is it true in light of what I know about Jesus? Is this message true in, in light of uh, my understanding of Jesus? So another way of saying is, it, is, is this the sort of way Jesus would really talk or act? Is this, could, would Jesus have this message himself? Can you imagine Jesus getting on board with this message? So the message again is you're more beautiful than you think. Um, would Jesus get on board with that? Is that true about, and I think that my answer to that is yes, but not in, in exactly the way it's interpreted by those who went through this experience. Yes, are we more beautiful than we think? Um, I, I think the takeaway from those who went through this experience is a little off from how Jesus would intend a message like this. So let's go back into the commercial and hear how one of those who participated in this experience sort of assesses the meaning of it. Here we go. I should be more grateful of my natural beauty. It impacts the choices and the friends that we make, the jobs we apply for, how we treat our children. It impacts everything couldn't be more critical to your happiness. Okay, so she's saying there, uh, I should be more appreciative of my natural beauty because that impacts every aspect of our life. And what she's saying is that my physical beauty is directly tied to my happiness. So while the experience she had was profound in that it surfaced this destructive interior narrative, this sort of savage interior voice we have about ourselves, that it applies not just to how we describe our physical appearance, but how we describe ourselves, our soul. Um, there's a takeaway in this that was missed by this woman, I think, because when she says that our that the ability to embrace our real beauty, our real physical beauty, is the key to our happiness in every area of life, that is a surface understanding of something deeper that's going on here. Yes, Jesus would agree that we are more beautiful than we think but he would not land on our physical appearance as the source of that beauty and the source of our peace and happiness. When he outed the destructive narratives of those around him, um, people who harbored uh, savage beliefs about themselves, and he found ways to draw those to the surface, his point was to try to expose those lies to the light and to try to help them to understand their true value. So, when he told his disciples that worry and anxiety were a waste because if they could embrace and realize how cherished and valuable God sees them, then they would not sort of waste their life's energy by in worry and anxiety. He said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God's awareness of, the, of that sparrow, his personal connection and relationship to that sparrow. And then he says, you're more valuable than a huge flock of sparrows. Of course, he's paying attention to you. Of course, he cherishes you. Just look at the creation around you and you'll see if he cherishes this creation that is in some ways inanimate and or unable to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with me, how much more do I cherish you who can do those things? So 
Jesus definitely wants to surface these interior narratives in us that are destructive and, and self-recriminating. But his answer to that is not just see your physical beauty for what it really is, because that's what will change your life. That's not something I don't believe that Jesus would embrace. So another question is, is it true within the boundaries of things Jesus actually said and did? Well, yes, in a way, this exercise, this, this experiment in understanding your own voice, your own self-recriminating voice, is something that we see examples of him saying and doing. When he encounters Zacchaeus, a tax collector whose self-narrative whose, uh, self can only be described as, you know, it must have been semi-suicidal because he's a betrayer. He's surrounded by people who hate him who don't want anything to do with him, that don't want any social connection with him and don't see any good thing in him. And he's so desperate for light and life that he climbs a tree just to see Jesus. He embarrasses himself in front of everybody by climbing up into a tree just to see him. And when Jesus turns his gaze on him and pays attention to him and says, I want to go to your house and eat, Zacchaeus responds with this explosion of generosity and repentance. He has been longing to be seen by someone who can mark his heart as good. And Jesus, by asking to go to his house to eat, is essentially saying, I embrace you, Zacchaeus, just as you are. I embrace you before you change, not after you change. And this explodes this in, uh, interior narrative that Zacchaeus has, and Jesus calls it out into the light. And Zacchaeus has hope for the first time. So we can see that Jesus did do what this commercial does. He tries to expose what is held in the darkness and put it into the light to see the contrast of it. So that aspect of this commercial actually fits with what Jesus already does. Now, another question we can ask is, is it true on the face of it? Is it true on the face of it? Well, yes and no in the case of this commercial, I think. Yes, it's true on the face of it, but um, had this commercial been uh, contextualized within a uh, relationship with Jesus, I think the outcome would have been different. But since it was a obviously a secular commercial with a secular message intended, you're more beautiful than you think, therefore embrace your real beauty and you'll find your real happiness. It's a, it is a false path, I think, that, that um, emerges out of this commercial. That, that path won't lead, ultimately, to the deepest kind of peace that Jesus is offering and inviting us into. So, in a sense, there is a truth on the face of it for the experience, but on the face of it, the takeaway in the commercial is not true. So, it, um, it's interesting for a commercial like this that is so beloved, I'm guessing, as you're listening to me talk about this, that this sort of underlying untruth was not something that you were consciously aware of if you ever saw this ad before or after listening to this ad. It was not a conscious awareness that mixed in with the truth here is some untruth, things that Jesus did not model or say, um, and therefore wouldn't embrace parts of. So. Uh, Another question, and then I'll leave it at this. 
Is the foundation or source of the information true or has it been distorted somehow? Well, I think the foundation of the information is true. The distortion comes in how that information is processed. Um, every, uh, so in life, we have all kinds of experiences and we process meaning out of those, experience, those experiences through the lens of meaning that we use or bring to that in, into that experience. And I'm suggesting that the lens we bring with us is Jesus himself, that all of our experiences are best seen through the lens of Jesus, who is the truth. And in this case, um, the, the women who are trying to bring meaning to this experience for themselves found uh, a rabbit trail that sounds good, but isn't really the truth in the end. So the foundation is, is true for this information, but the distortion has come in the interpretation or the meaning given to that experience. So if you pick up the, uh, the Jesus-centered life, you'll see that I have a, like five or six more of these kinds of lens questions that help us to encounter the quote-unquote truths that we're surrounded by and that are forming our beliefs. For sure, because this commercial is so powerful, the takeaway of meaning from the commercial is also forming in us a belief as, as we more deeply embrace the experience of watching this commercial. So it's important to consider what that forming belief is. And, and again, how does it relate to the lens that we're using, which is Jesus is the truth. So you can check out the Jesus-centered life and the chapter on redefining truth as a beeline practice, and you'll find a half dozen or more more of these sort of evaluating questions. And it's not like you're, you're um, writing these on the palm of your hand and looking at them in the midst of your life experience. It's not like you keep a cheat sheet in your back pocket. It's learning to consider in, in the whole of it, um, what is the truth I'm hearing? And what is the meaning I'm to take from that truth or that experience? What is the meaning? And, and uh, our, our act of worship is to invite Jesus to be that lens for us, not just to point us to the truth, but to, to uh, be a filter of truth itself for all of these experiences and for the meaning that we bring to them. So our mission here is to develop sort of like breathing, a sense that Jesus is always redefining truth for us all the time, everywhere, by himself. So the closer we get to his heart, the more we understand and taste his heart, the more likely we are to have him as a lens for all truths. So um, the outcome of this in our life looks like this. If you examine your beliefs through the lens of capital T truth through Jesus, and let him teach you the truth, rather than bringing your truth to him to simply rubber stamp, it will change you. You will become transformed around the truth, who is him. So what does that mean then? Well, think about the truths that you believe about hot issues like abortion or gun control or immigration or healthcare or our tax system and on and on. These are all beliefs that we hold that we, even imperceptibly, um, because we hold these truths, we bring them to Jesus and say, rubber stamp my truth. So then we look for evidence in Jesus that will support our truth. Instead of bringing that truth to him and saying, Jesus, 
In what way do you support this truth? And in what way do you not support this truth? Um, I'm letting you teach me what the truth is through who you are. And I'm um, desperate and hungry enough to offer to you in my outstretched hands the truths and beliefs that I've held dearly. And I, instead of holding on to those and defending them, I'm offering them to you as sort of my widow's might. Here's my offering to you. And in offering these truths to you, I'm inviting you to redefine what I have held to be true. It's a remarkable act of faith and trust, and it delights Jesus when we do this. So your question then is, who defines truth in the areas of belief that you've held on to? If you're the one defining the truth rather than Jesus, then the first step is simply to admit that, to be honest about it. That is the first opening that we can give Jesus to help to redefine what it is we've held on as truth. And I think this is particularly important as we move into a new, for instance, election cycle. How are you making your decisions? In what way has Jesus been a lens for those decisions? And what beliefs do you bring into it that you've already decided are immovable? And would you have the courage to hold those beliefs in your hands and hold them up to Jesus and say, I worship you more than I worship my, my strongly held beliefs? Would you redefine the truths that I held on to and then allow him that opportunity to both support and push back against things that you've held to be self-evident. So the second step, obviously, is if you're a disciple here, this is what I'm trying to say, is to open yourself to the truth and let the truth shape you. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out uh, the Jesus Center Planner before they're all gone. Just go to paying-ridiculous-attention-to-jesus.com, season four, episode 42. You'll also get links to things we talked about today, including the Real Beauty Dove ad that you just listened to. So. Check it out at paying-ridiculous-attention-to-jesus.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.